My name is Jason Carver. I'm one of the uh, teaching elders here at Penn Valley. It is wonderful to be with you this morning. If you've been with us for a while, and I know most of you have, you know that we're going through the story of God. We're looking from the very beginning in Genesis to the very end in Revelation, how God's Bible fits together, not as disjointed individual stories, but as one story about one Savior who's come to establish one family. And so this morning, we're going to continue in that. And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking about it's Christmas. And as I was thinking about Christmas, I was thinking about how much I love this time of year. And I'm guessing most of you do as well. And there are a lot of things to love. Obviously, I'm up here teaching the Bible this morning. So I love the fact that this season celebrates the coming of our Savior to become a man, to live in this world, in this flesh, to know what it's like to be us. I love the music. I love the food. I love our friends and family that we get together with. But if I'm being honest, really close to the top of that list is I love Christmas lights. And my family will tell you, and my wife in particular, that I am always looking to do more lights. Now, we have some. We do what we can. But if I had enough money and if I knew that my family and my neighbors would not plot against me, this is what my house would look like. <laughs> now, I can see the look on some of your faces, like, I knew there was always something strange about that guy. Why would you want your house to look like that? Well, some of you may know that fall and winter are actually my favorite seasons. I love when the air gets crisper, I love when the holidays of Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's come around. But there's two things that I don't like. One, I don't like ice. I love snow. I do not like ice. But two, I don't like it when we spend 14 hours a day in darkness. I need a little bit of light because I travel in in the morning and it's dark. I get home at night and it's dark. And all I see through a tiny little window in my office is maybe a ray of sunlight here and there. Now, of course, that darkness pales in comparison to the darkness that sometimes is part of our life. And that darkness may be on a personal level. It might be a hardship that we're going through. It might be a loved one that we're burdened for. It might be looking at how society has rejected Jesus and being burdened by the darkness that we see. Well, if you, like me, are in need of light, I've got great news because the book that we're going to look at today is going to give us a glimmer of light in a really dark time. So I hope what's happening now, because we're in about our third month of doing this, going through the story, I hope one of the things that you see is that we're not just doing this to help give you a grasp of how the whole story fits together. That's absolutely true. But I hope it's encouraging and challenging you individually, within your family, and hopefully if you're part of, and if you're not, you should be a small group, to be looking through the word and gleaning from it what God has for you. So I want to pray. And then we want to get to it. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our eyes. Lord, Holy Spirit, 
You have preserved this word for thousands of years for the benefit of your people whom you've called in your name, who you, Jesus, purchased with your blood. So we, we trust in you, O oh Lord, today to speak despite my inadequacies because you are perfect. Thank you for doing that, Lord. Give us joy as we look and peer into your word together. And as we do, Lord, let us remember what James says. Don't just be mere hearers, but act on what you hear. I pray that you would equip us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we've been going through the story, right, so far we've hit on some really major parts of the story. We've seen creation, that out of nothing, God made everything. We've seen the fall, that God creates man in his image, and man is good. He's actually very good. But then he decides to go his own way. And even though that happens, in the midst of that story in Genesis 3, we see that God offers hope and a promise. And then we come to the flood, and we see that even though God is judging man in his sin, he's preserving the life of a family so that his promise that he made to Adam and Eve would continue. Then comes the man Abraham. After scattering people across the globe because of their continued attempt to be God rather than to live in relationship with God, he chooses a man, Abraham, and he says through him, the whole earth will be blessed. And Abraham finally winds up with the son that God had promised to him and Sarah. His name is Isaac, and he's asked to sacrifice him. And we're, we see that because of sin, a sacrifice is needed, but God stops Abraham. And he says, no, I'm the one who is going to provide the sacrifice that will be needed to fulfill the promise that I have made. And so Isaac has two sons, and God chooses the younger one to fulfill his purposes through. And we see the life of Jacob is one filled with doing things his way in his time until he encounters God and wrestles with him, leaving with a limp, but also with a change of name and the blessing of the promise that God will continue his work through his lineage. His son Joseph, whom he loves, is next up. He's taken and sold into slavery by his brothers who can't stand him. And if that wasn't bad enough, he winds up falsely imprisoned. And yet, all through it, God is keeping his promise, and he's working through those difficult situations. And eventually, it's going to be Joseph who is going to preserve his family. Then we get into Exodus, and we see that after Joseph is gone, that the leaders of Egypt don't remember him, and they despise the Israelites. And so they enslave them, and they make their life literally like a living hell. And they cry out, and God hears them. And he delivers them at one point, causing the waters of a great sea to part so they could walk through it on dry land. And yet, despite all of this, despite him giving them his law on how to live in relationship with him, they continued to choose their own way. Until one day, they're all being bitten by a bunch of snakes. And what does God do? He stays faithful to his promise. And he, he makes a way for them to see their sin and have their sin dealt with. 
And then he raises up a leader in Joshua to take them into the land that he had promised all along. Last week we came to Judges, and this might be the darkest time so far in Israel's history. It's a period of regular rebellion, but God is still faithful to his promises. And he raises up judges time and time again to lead his people back to a place of repentance and peace. And that leads us to a story that's happening parallel with Judges, where we're going to be today, and that is the, New, the Old Testament book of Ruth. So I'd encourage you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the Pew Bibles. It's on page 187. Now, one of the things I hope as we look at this together today that you're going to see is that in this story, God is simultaneously working in the lives and intimate ways of the characters of the story, while at the same time, he is fulfilling his grander plan and moving his story of redemption ahead. Now, as I was preparing for this message over and over this week, I just felt like adding this little parenthetical phrase right now. I don't know where you're at in life. I don't know what circumstances you are facing. Maybe you're in a tough spot and unsure which way to turn. Maybe you've made some choices that you thought were right, but they don't seem like they've worked out. I want to encourage you that even if you can't see it, God is, in fact, at work in your life. You may not know what he's up to. You may not like where he has you. But I want you to know with certainty that God has not abandoned you. He is not distant. He is close. He is not absent. He is present. He is not finished with you. He's continuing his work. And he's not disappointed in you. He loves you deeply. And we're going to see those things worked out in this story. So as we go through it, I want us to notice four things together. I want us to see love's resolve. I want us to see love's reputation, love's request, and love's reward. And the nice part here is these actually just really line up with the four chapters of the book of Ruth. Chapter one is about love's resolve. Chapter two is about love's redemption, uh, reputation. Excuse me. Chapter three is about love's request. And chapter four is about love's reward. So as we get into the beginning of the book, you're going to see an important point that you don't want to overlook if you want to understand why the book of Ruth is written. It's found in the very first verse, and it says, in the day when the judges ruled. So the author gives us a clue. He gives us a setting. He's letting us know that the events of the book of Ruth are taking place at the same time of the events of the book of Judges. And we know from last week how dark the time is in Israel at this point. The book of Judges is basically bookend with two verses. In chapter 2, verse 10, it states, and all the generation, referring to Joshua and the other leaders who had led Israel into the promised land, all of them were gathered to their fathers. They all died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. It wasn't passed on. And then as we come to the very last verse 
of the book of Judges. The author says this, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone, mark that, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So a new generation grows up not knowing who God is and what ultimately happens. They all go their own way to do what they think is right. And so we see through Judges this cycle that Adam mentioned, Pastor Adam mentioned last week, where Israel falls into sin and idolatry. They become enslaved. They cry out, God, save us. And because God's faithful to his promises, he does by raising up a judge who returns and restores Israel temporarily and they come back to serving the Lord. But then what happens? The judge dies and they go right back to what they were doing before. It's not a great time in Israel's history. So they give us the setting. Then he moves on to the situation. There's a famine, if you look in beginning in verse 2, the end of verse 1 into verse 2, that there's a famine in the land. Now, what's interesting here is that it's happening. We don't know if this is all throughout Israel or just in this area of Judah, but it's specifically in the town that this time of year we sing about, the little town of Bethlehem. And literally, that town's name means the house of bread. So in the house of bread, there is no bread. And so there's this family, a husband, Elimelech, a wife, Naomi, and their two sons, Maon and Kilian. And they decide, you know what? We've got to get out of here. So just like the Beverly Hillbillies, they pack up the stuff, they sell their land, and they go, well, not quite to Beverly Hills, they go to Moab. And if you know anything about Moab, that seems like an awfully strange place for them to go. Now, we know as a country of immigrants, people constantly come to the United States from places that are war-torn, that have no hope, no future to find a better life. And it might seem like on the surface that Elimelech and his family are doing just that. That is, unless we remember that Israel is the promised land. It's the place that God led his people, a place that the Bible describes as flowing with milk and honey. It's a place where God promised his presence and where he would make provision for his people. So this is a pragmatic move, not a move of faith. It's a move where they say, you know what? We don't know when we're going to have enough bread again. Let's get out of here and find a better place. God hadn't forgotten about Israel, but Israel had forgotten about God. And in a way, this story is a microcosm of what's going on at large in Israel. Because they sought provision, this family sought provision and blessing away from the Lord. But they move not just to any old place, but to Moab. And if you know the story of Moab, you know that Moab exists because after the events of Sodom and Gomorrah, 
Lot's two daughters, who think they've got no opportunity for marriage, hatch a plan where they get their father drunk and then they have sex with him so that they can have children. And those children become Moab and then the father of the Ammonites. And so they choose to go to a place that historically, even in their time, was known as a no-no. They knew from Numbers 25 that the Moabite women had enticed the men of Israel sexually and turned them away from their God. They had known that in Judges chapter 3, in Israel's rebellion, God raised up the Moabites to discipline them. They knew that the Moabites worshipped other gods. And yet, Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, decides we're going to move to Moab, and he takes the family there. So it's against that setting and in that situation that the story unfolds. And as we see it unfold, we see that not too long into their time there, we don't know exactly how long, but tragedy strikes, a serious tragedy. What they might have planned as a temporary stay turns into a long-term stay. They've become, in essence, permanent residents of Moab. And by later in the story, we see they've been there at least for 10 years and maybe a little bit longer after that, we don't know for sure. But during this time, Elimelech dies. And so it leaves Naomi as a widow. But in the story, she still has two sons left. And they get married to Moabite women. Again, something that would have been unusual, not prohibited, but not something that generally occurred. And you would think, okay, well, there's a chance here for this family, but then they both die. Not one of them, but both of them wind up dying. You see that there in verse 4 and 5. And so now this leaves Naomi with no family. She's already given up her land. She's already left the only social network she knew. And now the three men that would have been able to provide and protect her are gone. So she's left as an immigrant widow in a foreign country that hates her people. So what's the solution? Well, now we get to the interesting part of the story as chapter one continues. As it happens, and we're going to see that kind of idea, this as it happened idea, a lot through this story. Naomi, who's 50 plus miles away from Bethlehem, in the field somewhere in Moab, in a time when there wasn't cars, trains, planes, television, news, social media, she hears that God has visited Israel and has granted them rains for their crops to grow. So she thinks, well, you know what? I've got nothing to lose at this point. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. And it's the first month of the Jewish calendar at that point. It would have been somewhere in March or April when harvesting season for the first crops is coming to be. 
So she decides, I'm going to head back. And as we see the story unfold, beginning in verse 6 and after of chapter 1, we see that her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, are with her. But along the way, Naomi turns around and says to them, you know what? I know what it's like to be an immigrant widow in a different country among people that aren't my people. Turn back. Go back to your parents. Go back to your family. Maybe then you'll have a chance at a normal life. And she prays. And this is the first time we're really seeing in the story at least that Naomi is interacting and bringing up the Lord. She's praised that he would be kind to them, deal kindly with them as they had to her, and that he would bless them. You can see Naomi's love for her daughters-in-law. And in her mind, the best situation for them is to go back to the people that they knew. But there's a little bit more going on than just that. If you look a little bit later in verse 13, you'll see Naomi makes this statement. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. See, it's interesting. There hasn't been a whole lot about God said so far in the story. But Naomi is aware, at least in some fashion, that God is involved in the hardships that she's facing. But as of yet, she does not see how they're going to work out for good. She seems, it would appear, from the way the text moves forward in her interaction with her daughters-in-law, that she thinks her life has been a failure. And that when it comes to Orpah and Ruth, they would be better off without her, even though it doesn't seem from their perspective that they think that way because they're willing to leave and go to another country to follow her. But she pleads with them, go back. And we see that one of the two of them does. Orpah kisses her, there's tears flowing. She doesn't want to, but she sort of realizes the pragmatic wisdom of what Naomi said. And so she heads back, but Ruth is absolutely adamant that she is not going to leave. And that's where we get this famous passage from chapter one, where Ruth says to her, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and I will there be buried. And as if that wasn't intense enough, she says, may the Lord do to me and more also, if anything other than death parts me from you. And what happens? Naomi sees she's not getting anywhere on this one. So she's like, all right, let's go. And so they're on their way back, and then at the end of chapter 1, we see this somber return to Bethlehem. She and Naomi roll into town, 
And you can, you can imagine, right, especially if you ever grew up or lived in a small town where everybody knew everything, what it must have been like to have all eyes staring at her. And people are trying to like, boy, she looks familiar. Could that, could that be Naomi? It's, it's almost like if you've ever seen after presidents leave office, they always show the picture of the first day when they were inaugurated and how young and youthful they often look. And then at the end, it looks like they're about to keel over, right? That's probably what it was like for Naomi. She had been through an extremely difficult time. So you can imagine the glances and the whispers as she enters town. You can imagine that maybe there were even some really difficult questions like, hey, where's Elimelech? Or, boy, your boys must be, have their own families by now, right? And just the weight of it sinking on her shoulders. In fact, when they call out to her, when they speak to her, when they interact with her, and they call her by her name, she's like, stop, my name is no longer Naomi. Please call me Mara. Now, she's going to play on words with her names here because her actual given name means pleasant. But she's feeling anything but that right now. And so she says, call me Mara, which in Hebrew means bitter, because the Lord has done this to me. She says, she calls him the Almighty, and she says, he's dealt bitterly with me. Now, I want to be careful. I am not saying that Naomi is or isn't complaining about God. I'm not saying she's angry with him. We just don't know that. It could be that she just senses he's up to something, but it seems really hard to deal with. But all along, she's going to have Ruth by her side. And that is going, eventually, as the story continues to unfold, change Naomi's life. So we see love's resolve. We see that Ruth is unwilling under any circumstances to leave Naomi. That's chapter one. Chapter two, we see love's reputation. And here, through this, we're going to see a God-centered service, a God-centered concern and generosity, and a God-centered joy and hope. So here's where the story starts to turn, at least a little bit. And so as we come into chapter two, Naomi is burdened. She's worn down by what has happened in her life. And Ruth, who, by the way, is also a widow, she gets there and she's like, you know what? I have got to do something for Naomi. And so we see that she says to Naomi, please let me go out into the fields and glean. Let me do this for you. Now, gleaning is something that God provided for the care of the widow, the sojourner, and the poor. You'll see it in Leviticus chapter 19. He specifically instructs the landowners in Israel. He says, there are certain parts of the land you will not touch. You will leave them for those in need. In other words, it's not about your personal maximization. It's about caring for others like I care for them. And if you read through that passage in Leviticus 19, you're going to come across one of the most famous verses in the Bible, where God says, 
that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. It's tied in with the gleaning. And so Ruth is like, please, let me go out. Now, this was hard work. She would be there from sunup till sundown. It was dangerous work because of the time in which she lived. She was a foreign, young, widowed woman. And the men weren't exactly godly men for the most part, unfortunately. So this was like throwing, you know, the hens out to the wolves, to the foxes, her going out there. But she knows that Naomi is in need. And so she's willing to do whatever she needs to do. And so, as it happens, there it is again, as it happens, she just happens to wind up on a specific person's property, and that specific person just happens to be a relative of Naomi, a close enough relative that he could be, as we'll see in a little bit, a kinsman redeemer. So here we're introduced to Boaz. And as Ruth is out gleaning, Boaz shows up from town, and he sees that there's somebody new there, somebody he doesn't know. And so he pulls aside his men and he's like, who is that? And they're like, oh yeah, that's that Moabite woman who came back with Naomi. Uh, she just like begged us to be able to go into the fields and she wasn't going to be stopped. So there she is. It's sort of what they're going at. And Boaz takes this interest in her, but notice what he says when he first arrives in chapter 2 and in verse 4 he says to his working men the lord be with you now that's something we could just look at and move right past it doesn't seem to be that important to the story it's sort of like if somebody sneezes and you say god bless you that's what it seems like but in fact as we watch Boaz live his life in this darkened time, we're going to see that his walk matches his talk. He's not just going to say, God bless you. He's going to be an active part of God's blessing to the extent that he is able. And we're going to see that specifically with Ruth. And so he approaches her. And now he knows a little bit about, his, about her story, but he comes up and he begins to address her. And he does it in what would have most assuredly been an uncommon way in his place and time. Verses eight and nine. He's interacting with her. He's asked who she is. And he, and he says to her, now listen, my daughter. Do not go glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged my young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now, Notice this interaction. First, notice that Boaz is probably an older gentleman, at least somewhat older than Ruth is, because he refers to her as daughter. But he doesn't just do that. He goes out of his way 
to give her freedom in his fields to glean as much as she needs, to ensure that she is treated respectfully and is safe, and that she gets enough both in the food that she's going to take back to Naomi and enough water to drink during the day. And Ruth is blown away by this. Why would you do this? And look at Boaz's response. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He knows her reputation. And he knows that she has moved away from everything she has known to come to a place and a people who are not her own, but that she knows there's something up with this God of Israel. And so he says, you've come and you've taken refuge under his wings. And you're not going to be sorry for that. And I'm going to make sure that I do my part to see your faith in him flourish. So as I was preparing for this week, I was listening to somebody who was talking about this passage, and he mentioned that there's a gentleman in his church who's extremely generous. And he was talking to him one time, and, and he said, you know, how did you get to this point? And he said, well, he's like, it was really simple. He's like, every time I saw a prayer request come out or became aware of one, I would ask the Lord, is it me who you would have answer that prayer request? That's what Boaz is doing here. He's saying, God, you've brought somebody here. I know what your word says. I'm going to make sure that I'm doing my part. And at the end of the day, before she goes home, Ruth winds up with the equivalent of about 30 pounds of barley, which is a huge amount. She has been well provided for. And so she comes home and all of a sudden, we're starting to see a different side of Naomi. Because she comes home and she shows them all that God had provided, all that Boaz had given, all that she had gleaned. And she brings home this food that Boaz had given her while she was there. And Naomi's like, wow. And then she takes it up a few notches because Ruth tells her, where she's been, whose field she's been on. Oh, it's this guy named Boaz, and he was, he was unbelievable. And listen to the words that Ruth speaks, or excuse me, that Naomi speaks. May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Remember, one chapter earlier, she had said, I went full and I came home empty. God has dealt bitterly with me. But in this moment, seeing God's faithfulness, his love, his care and concern has reminded Naomi that God does not forsake the living or the dead. And so she tells Ruth, this is a close relative, which is great news because he can be a redeemer or depending what translation you have, 
a, rede a kinsman redeemer. It's someone who could rescue someone who had lost everything through the death of their spouse and return their land to them. But being a redeemer would require three things. Relationship, it had to be a close enough family relationship. The person had to have a sufficient enough amount of wealth. And lastly, and most importantly, as we'll see, they have to have a willingness to be the redeemer. Would Boaz be that redeemer? Well, Naomi certainly thinks he will, or at least there's a really strong chance. So she is celebrating God's goodness to her, but she's also celebrating God's goodness to Ruth. If you look at the end of the chapter, she's, she thanks him that she's been protected, knowing that this is a dangerous place to be in. And she says the same thing that Boaz said. Don't go anywhere else. Stay there. And so at the end, we see this little nugget. And again, the, the author's been doing this at the beginning and the end of each of these chapters. It says, so she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. Till the end. Now what? Now what's going to happen next? The harvests are coming up. This is great. God's provided, but what happens when there's no more to harvest? Well, I'm glad you asked, because chapter 3 will tell us. So Naomi comes up with this plan. And she says to Ruth, listen, it's the threshing time. Boaz is going to be out threshing his grain. And it's a long, arduous, hard day. At the end, he's going to be really tired. Here's what I want you to do. And you can almost anticipate, like, what's this going to be? And she says, I want you to go where he is. I want you to lift the covers off of his feet and leave his feet exposed. I want you to lay down nearby, and then you're going to wait. Oh, wait for what? Wait till he wakes up startled and see what he says. What kind of plan is that? Right? For those planners out here, I know. You'll be like, there is no way that works. But Ruth says, you know what? Okay. Naomi, for you, I'll do it. And so she heads over, she does just what Naomi says, and exactly what Naomi said would happen happens. In the middle of the night, it starts to get cooler. His feet are exposed. He wakes up. He's startled. He looks around, and there's a woman that he doesn't know who this is. And he's like, what on earth is going on? And as if that wasn't surprising enough, we see Ruth's response. And she says, I am Ruth your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She uses almost the identical words that he, the last chapter, Boaz says to her about God. And she says, I get it, God's up to something. Cover me with your wings. In other words, this is a marriage proposal. Boaz, will you marry me and take care of my mother-in-law? That's what she's asking. Now, maybe it felt like an eternity waiting for Boaz's response here, like, this is kind of an awkward moment. 
Like, not one that would be common for marriage purposes. And what's he going to say? Well, in verse 10, he says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made the last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do all that you have asked, for all my fellow townsmen know you are a worthy woman. And it is true that I am a redeemer. Boaz is humbled by Ruth's proposal, and he sees in it an even greater level of love for Naomi than what he saw before, which was already an extraordinary level. And so it seems like, right, that we're at the moment that this, if this was a Hallmark Christmas movie, they would be kissing, right? That's what's got to be coming next. Uh-oh, there's a problem. He says, you know what? He says, there's somebody else who's a closer relative. What? What are you talking about? This is set up perfectly. Why would you say that to her? Well, if you haven't caught on, Boaz is a man of dignity. He knows that if there's somebody who's closer, that person should be given the opportunity to redeem first. And what a picture of love this actually is. Because his perspective is, I don't care ultimately who gets to care for Ruth and Naomi as long as they are cared for. If it's me, great. If it's him, great. Only that after all they've been through, God would show his mercy and grace to them. But he's also clear that he won't hesitate if he's the one given the opportunity. And then at the very end of the chapter, we see the pure love in this situation. Because if you're expecting that two people are in close proximity together, a man and a woman laying down near each other, in this day and time especially, when there was heightened sexual immorality in Israel, and yet there's not even the faintest hint of it in the story. In fact, they go out of their way to be above board. And at the end, after they wake up, and Ruth goes out her own way so as not to cause any suspicion before she does, notice what Boaz does. Again, he makes provision for her and for Naomi. And now it's like we've had a cliffhanger. What in the world's going to happen? And that's chapter four, love's reward. We don't have to get very far into it to see that it's resolved. Naomi says, you know what? He's not going to wait on this. And sure enough, Boaz doesn't. Boaz deals with the matter first thing in the morning. We see him out at the town gates with the elders. That's where they would have gathered. And he's waiting for this other man, undisclosed, unknown, unnamed man to come along. And he does. And Boaz says, tells him about the situation and says, this is your opportunity to redeem. And the other man says, I'll do it. And you're like, oh, here we go again. This really should be Boaz. This story is meant for Boaz. And you can almost see the smile on Boaz's face, can't you? As he knows the ace he's got up his sleeve. He says to him, oh, you know what, by the way, I might have forgotten to mention if you take care of Naomi, you also have to marry Ruth and have children with her. 
And he's like, oh, oh. Listen, my financial planner would not like that plan. That's going to ruin me. And he says, I'm out. And Boaz is probably like underneath, yes. Because he's like, well, then I'm in. I will take care of them. And so we begin to see this celebration and a marriage coming. But I want you to notice, I want you to notice in chapter 4, after the legal transaction takes place, after they take off their shoes and give them to each other, which I'm sort of glad we just do a handshake uh, after reading that. That was a little odd, but right, that was what they did in their time. After that happens, notice what the people of Bethlehem do. They give this prayer, beginning in verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, listen, like Rachel and Leah. Whoa, top shelf right away. Two of the most important women because they are the ones who built up the tribes of Israel. They were the mothers of the 12 tribes. May, may God build up your house like he did with Rachel and Leah. And not only that, it says, may you act worthily and be renowned in Bethlehem. May God make a name for you because of what you've done here today. And then this part in verse 12, and this is sort of the strange part. It says, and may your house be like the house of Perez, who tamer bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, if you know that story that they refer to of Perez, Judah's oldest son marries Tamar. God strikes him dead because of his sinfulness. The second son is supposed to marry her and continue his older brother's name. He marries her, but he won't have children with her because he wants it to be his name, not his brother's. So God strikes him down. And then Judah's like, there's no way I'm sending my third son over there. But then what happens? Judah's walking along one day, and here's Tamar. And she's dressed like a prostitute. And he's like, oh, nobody's looking. All right. And he winds up having relationship with her. And then through that, she bears him children. Now, why on earth? That seems like such an awful story to include in your prayers. Why on earth would they do that? Well, I think it may be the recognition that God is faithful no matter what. God had made a promise that there would be a lineage. And even though there's all this mess surrounding Israel, God is still doing what God's going to do. And so he says, listen, look, look at all of what happened here and these past stories and how God was faithful. He's going to be faithful here too. So Ruth marries Boaz. He redeems Naomi. Ruth has a child. And the women of Bethlehem rejoice with Naomi. And they say to her, listen, Ruth has been better to you than seven sons would have been. 
She has meant more to you because of her faithfulness and her undying love than what you would have received with seven sons. God hasn't left you empty, Naomi. He has filled you more than you could have imagined. You see what's happening here? Ruth is generally who we think of as the primary person in this story, but really as you read it, it's really Naomi. A woman who starts out on the wrong path, who loses her husband and her sons, who thinks that God is just going to deal bitterly with her, but now comes to realize how good God actually is. And so this is going to lead to an inheritance. Now, hopefully, and this is where we're ending, hopefully as we've gone through the story of the Bible so far, you've realized that God works in unexpected ways. He doesn't do what you would expect him to do. He didn't select a super spiritual person to bless all the world through. He selected Abram, who was, a, who was not a God follower when he called him. He didn't choose the firstborn Esau. He chose the secondborn. Jacob. He didn't primarily build up Israel through Rachel, who was well-loved and was beautiful, but he does it through Leah, who's forgotten and unloved. And now we come to this story of Ruth. And at a time when Israel needed a hero, God selects a Gentile woman to continue his promise. Now, if we were writing the script and all that happened, that would be a great place to end, wouldn't it? But that's not how the book ends. The book actually ends with a genealogy. And you might be thinking that's a little bit strange, but it wouldn't have been in Bible times. And the reason it wouldn't have been strange then is that genealogies were like little footnotes. They were, they were like a paper trail to show God's goodness and faithfulness to the generations by using people and working through their lives. And that's exactly what he has done here. But if it had been treated just like a kinsman redeemer, it wouldn't be Boaz's name that would be on the genealogy. It would be Elimelech's. It's his name that Boaz is carrying on, not his own. But God is recognizing the sacrifice that Boaz and Ruth have made. And he is graciously including them in his story. So the book ends with this genealogy. But this genealogy is going to come back. And we're going to see it at a passage that you might read around Christmas time in Matthew chapter 1. And it's going to have all the exact same names, but instead of ending at David, it's going to go all the way to the true kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. You see, we read Ruth, and one of the most remarkable things about it is how unremarkable, in a way, the story actually is, right? We've come where God's created everything out of nothing. We've seen him bring plagues, and we've seen him open rivers and seas. We've seen him 
destroy a city's walls by having his people march around with horns rather than attacking. He's brought down manna from heaven to provide for his people. He's done all this, and yet none of those kind of things happens here in the book of Ruth. God is working his miraculous ways in the mundane of life. And I think that's actually really great news because that's where we live most of our lives, right? Most of our lives aren't situations like Naomi and Ruth, although that does happen. And I know some of you have been through that and I'm not downplaying that whatsoever. But for most, it's these mundane day-to-day things. And here we see through those, God is working his miracles. He's working in the lives of these people and through these people, he's working out his purposes for eternity. We need a true kinsman redeemer. We need someone who's a close relative. And Hebrews chapter two tells us that Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become merciful, merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Like Boaz, we need somebody who's wealthy and willing to give of his wealth to redeem us. Good news, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that in him you may become rich. And we need somebody who's willing. Hebrews 12 says this of Jesus, he is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at God's right hand. On a dark night, 2,000 years ago, in the little town of Bethlehem, the house of bread, the bread of life, would bring light into our dark world. So that like Naomi, we may have a family, Like Ruth, we may be adopted in, and like Boaz, we may be connected to the king. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, thank you so much for this beautiful book that shows us just how truly amazing your love is for us. Thank you, Lord, for how you worked through Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, both to draw them closer to you, but also to fulfill your ultimate purposes of sending your son that we may draw closer to you. Help us now as we finish our time of worship together to worship you with unfettered hearts that recognize that love, that miracle that you worked in the everyday circumstances of life, you will do for us and through us for your glory, honor, and praise. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.